It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yahoo! Here we go. Let's make sure everybody's got us. Hello, folks in the chat room. How are you? Good to see you. Uh, I just want somebody to say, yes, Michael, we've got you. So I know that we're good to go because I've had a couple of problems. I know you got me. <laughs> All right, they've got me. All right. Anyway, I'm very excited today because today's show is Creating Income When COVID Killed the Touring Business with my friend, Mr. Sean Hurwitz. <laughs> I am uh, really excited to have Sean here. Um, we're close friends and we've only known each other, I don't know, five, six years or something like that, if it's even been that long. Yeah, and uh, we met through some mutual friends that have nothing to do with the music industry. And somebody said, oh, you should meet him. He's in the music business. I went, oh, he's a touring guitarist. I know nothing about his world except that, that time I had a dream where I was a rock star. And I think I woke up playing air guitar. Um, anyway, uh, as it turns out, though, our friendship has really grown close over the last years, largely due to our mutual uh, appreciation of hard work and being ethical in what you do. And uh, so, yeah, we've just become friends and don't see much of each other, especially lately, <laughs> but we are friends. So anyway, Sean, I, I, I want you to start out by telling everybody, uh, you know, kind of, First, you know what? First, tell us about the acts that you've toured with, just to kind of set the stage a little bit. Cool. First, thanks for having me on. Um, My pleasure. And, yeah, I wish we would see each other more, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, as far as um, who I've toured with, my, I, I guess I've toured with Anna Nalek, um, but I don't know if anyone remembers her. I guess the big two names that I've toured with are Smash Mouth, which I'm still out with, and Enrique Iglesias. So I did and Smash Mouth since 2011 and I was with Enrique from 2015 and then I left in 2019 so four years wow um yeah be, before the show I, I was telling Sean that it's so funny to me when I see videos of him on YouTube being a rock star on stage and I know him as this guy you know I mean he and his wife have come over to our house for dinner I just know him as my friend Sean I know he plays guitar I know he's a great musician and all that stuff but seeing him on stage he's like not a he said before he said I'm not a different guy but I, I turn on the performance thing um so we'll talk about that in a minute. But how many shows per year pre-COVID would you say you averaged? Uh, there are slow years and there are busy years. Uh, one of the reasons I left the Enrique camp was because they were having their second slow year in a row. And uh, Smash Mouth was like, hey, can you come do a few shows? I was like, yeah, sure. And then they were like, can you stay? And I was like, well, they've got about 60 shows left to the year. Enrique's got about seven on the calendar. So negotiated a little and figured out where I want to go and ended up going back to Smash Mouth and had a great wow. team in 2019. To answer the question, I would say in a terrible year, 25 shows and a great year, over 100 shows. Wow. And, and all over the world. I mean, I know the times, you know, you and I have talked to each other on WhatsApp or on the phone. And you're like, oh, I'm leaving for like, Dubai or Abu Dhabi or somewhere in the Middle East tomorrow. Um, what are some of the other countries that you've played in? 
Wait, say that last part again. I missed uh, What are some of the countries that you've played in around the world? Yeah. Um, I've been all over Europe, Asia, not so much. I mean, some of the countries. Uh, all of, I don't even know. South America, I've been to Brazil. I've been to, like you said, Dubai, uh, all over the Middle East, uh, Romania, Italy, Spain, Portugal, France, uh, everywhere down south. Um, so, so many places. I mean, if, if, if anyone really wants to check it out, just go to my website, seanhurwitz.com, and go to... Uh, go to my shows. There's future shows, which is empty, and past shows. And my past <laughs> shows are just like, it's just a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, how do you, you deal? That. How do you deal with jet lag? I know that you know. I've been to the Middle East a couple times. It's a 14, 15 hour flight. How do you sit on a plane for that amount of time? Get off the plane, check into your room, take a shower, go to sound check, and then turn it on for a show that night. Uh, you know, I'm a lucky guy. Jet lag really doesn't hit me too hard. I think the hardest that it hits me is actually going to New York or going somewhere to the East Coast. The three-hour difference really kind of screws you up. But uh, other than that, no, I don't know. Maybe, you know what, it's worth, I, I know we don't talk about it a lot, but I hate to let people down, but I'm not much of a party or I don't, I've never done any drugs. I've never had any alcohol that, and I drink <clears throat> a shitload of water. <laughs> wow. So, yes. That's a 64 ounce and I drink a few of those a day. So I think I just have a clean kind of body and I don't struggle like the, I, I, that might be it or maybe it's something else. But I think that might have to do with it. Other than that, man, on, when I'm on a flight, just watching a bunch of movies, reading, listening to podcasts and sleeping. And sometimes you get in and it's midnight and it's time to go to sleep. And sometimes you get in and it's five o'clock in the morning and it's time to be awake. You have to try and stay awake for the rest of the day so you can sleep well the ne that night. Uh, yeah, it's crazy, but I don't usually suffer from it. Do they upgrade you to first class on a global flight like to Dubai or somewhere? That's, you know, I guess that depends on the agreement you have with the production. I didn't have that agreement with the production, um, but I sometimes I did just because I flew so much. That's right. no longer... Uh, uh, anything, but like I, I think I've lost all my priority. But uh, but I have had a lot of first class upgrades due to just flying a lot. Right. Yeah, because that makes a difference. I've I've found that uh, the twice now I think I've upgraded to first on a flight that was over ten hours where you get the lay flat seat makes a world of difference. Because I can't sleep sitting up. I can't fold my arms, lay on the tray table. Um, you know. So yeah, you get there. If you time it right, I take like half a Somonix and time it so I go to sleep on LA time and then I get seven or eight hours, wake up wherever I'm going and I'm okay. So what's the biggest audience that you've ever played for? Um, I want to say it was 85,000 people in <laughs> Kiev. That's a small city. And where Kiev, the Ukraine? Uh, it was uh, it was outside in a, in a stadium, and I especially remember it because it was thirty one degrees, and I couldn't feel my hands. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so who books a show in the dead of winter? Whose brilliant idea was that? 
it, dude, there were 85,000 people there. They didn't care, but you know, they were all bundled up. I was running around as much as I could, but there were certain, there are certain parts in the show where it's just the lead guitar. And that's it. A few parts in the show. There's, there's one where it's only the lead guitar. And then there's a few where it's just the lead guitar with some pads behind, but they hear every time you can't hide behind anything else. It's not yeah. like a mixture of the drums and it's just you. <laughs> <laughs> and when you can't feel your fingers, it's very tense. So uh, jet lag, not much of a problem. Playing without being able to feel my fingers, and that's a whole different story. That that really takes – and you know what? Dare I say, I, I am not some insane guitarist. No one's going to see me play and go like, my God, he's amazing. But you know what I can do? I can get in front of 85,000 people and rock it at 31 degrees outside. And no one would know that I was even cold. So that's what I do best. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, and also there were 85,000 people there because 30 degrees is a heat wave in Kiev. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> oh man. Um, do you ever get butterflies before you hit the stage? I've never asked you that for you know as many conversations as we've been in, uh, or is it like, oh, here we go, another show? No, you haven't asked me that. Um, it's different butterflies. It's not butterflies like, guys, oh, is the crowd going to like it? Like, I feel like it's different if you go on as an artist and you're just like, I hope they like it, you know? Yeah. it's I don't get those. I get the, I hope it's going to be a good show. Like, I know the crowd's going to have a blast. They're here to see us. They're going to have, a, we are going to put on a crazy show. Smash Mouth, Enrique, it doesn't matter. It's going to be a good show. But it is... Is the band going to gel? Is there going to be any tension between me and uh, someone on stage? Uh, that's the things that I'm more concerned about. Like, is this going to be a really smooth show? Or is there going to be a really bumpy show? How is it? Another thing that you and I've never talked about, the, the dynamics of the relationships amongst the band members. Uh, I know you've, you've worked with Smash Mouth, Smash Mouth a lot, and so there's probably a, more of a family feeling in that scenario than there might have been during the Enrique years. Um, I guess you get close to whoever you're traveling with and playing with, but are there times where it's like somebody might piss you off before you go on stage, or somebody feels like you're rushing something, or they're rushing, you know, anything that would cause tension. Does that play out on the stage where it's like, man, can't wait to get off the stage with this jerk? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've had those for sure. Wow. Um, yeah, you. but uh, no one would know in a crowd. Again, we're all professionals. If we're doing our job right, they have no clue what's going on. But yeah, I've gone on stage with a lot of tension and I've got on stage with a lot of like, this is going to be great. And it was great. And But you just have to, when, when there's tension, even if there's like tension maybe with the family, before you get on stage, you just hear something happened or... I remember one time, I don't think it was, I don't remember when it was exactly, but Trish, my wife, um, called me up and she was like, she was so bothered because we have a, a, our small dog, uh, Bran. She was on a walk with him and he got attacked. Not, he didn't have to go to the doctor or anything like that to the vet, but he got like, he basically, basically this big dog came and just grabbed him and just threw him with his mouth. Wow. And he was fine, but she was so shook up. And she told me that, and then I had to get on stage in front of 20,000 people or whatever. 
they wouldn't have a clue that that just happened. That's because, again, I might not be like this insanely shredder virtuoso guitarist, but I'm a professional. And what I do, I do well. So, so yeah, I get that job done. But have there been cases and with other people too? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I remember watching The History of the Eagles Part 1. I think it was called a documentary some years ago. And, and they showed... I, Randy Miser, one of the original Eagles or early Eagles, um, the, the relationship with the band with Henley and Glenn Fry was melting down and, and they got into like, a, you know, they were trading verbal abuses back and forth on stage in front of an audience. And the Eagles have the most polished stage show. I mean, they've got it down to an absolute science. It's almost like as perfect as their records are, they are on stage. So to see them going, yeah, well, meet me out behind the dressing room after the show, a-hole. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff that's going on. I mean, you know, it's it's got to be bad for it to come out. There, yeah. there are only two reasons why it would come out like that in front of a crowd. Either there, there's some alcohol involved or drugs, and they're just not, they're not thinking straight. And if there aren't, it's just that bad that they can't not say something. Yeah. And, yeah, I remember seeing uh, John Five, the guitarist, kind of go at it with Marilyn Manson. It, this video of it, Marilyn Manson just kind of, I don't know, he I, he got on his nerves and, and John was, just, John literally, he just takes off his guitar. He's like, what, what, come on. <laughs> and, and Marilyn Manson kind of just like, put your guitar on. And now... I don't know. It could have been framed like that. I don't. It looked really real. Like I've been there. I've been there where I was just like, "Let's make this happen, bro." <laughs> you know? Wow. I I can't imagine. I mean, we've had stuff go on at the road rally where the audience has no clue. You know, I'll find out that something disastrous happened. Literally, it seems like my staff, which are wonderful every year at the road rally, but. There have been times where a staff member has come up to me and said something like, we just had somebody commit suicide on the third floor. And they tell me that 30 seconds before I take to the stage. So there is that professionalism thing. Once you get on that stage and look out at the crowd, even though my crowd is a thousand people in a ballroom is compared to 85,000. Yeah. If you're any sort of pro, you just got to do your job. Exactly. It's a job. I yep. mean, not to take away from the wonderful time I'm having there, but it is acting yeah. like you're getting the same performance for me, whether I'm in a good mood, bad mood, whether I'm cold, hot, doesn't matter. You're going to get an amazing performance. That's my job. When I go up there, I take that very seriously. I, I totally believe that about you because if somebody walked up to me and, and like said, okay, 10 seconds, tell us how, how would you describe Sean Hurwitz? I would say serious. You are. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't know it to look at you now, but you're a very serious guy. I mean, when we first met, I remember the first time we physically met, I think we hung out at my office and went out to dinner or something. And uh, you were just like the furrowed brow, just asking one really good question after another, after another. You just couldn't get enough information. And you were so focused, like worse than a laser. I mean, like just really on it. So... Uh, it doesn't surprise me that you're able to focus on your job on stage and just turn it on and be Sean, the cool guitar player, as opposed to Sean, the not quite as cool guy that I hang out with. 
Thank you. So you grew up in Israel. Uh, how old were you? When did you come to the U.S.? How long have you been here? That sort of stuff. So my parents are from New York. They were born and raised in New York, and they left in 78. Actually, it was just their 43, uh, on, on Saturday, was their 43-year anniversary to moving to, to making Aliyah, to moving to Israel. Mazel tov. Uh, they had me and another four brothers. Uh, and I'm sorry, another three brothers. We're four altogether. I'm the oldest. And... Um, and then, so we all have American citizenship, and I always kind of knew that I wanted to come here. And then uh, I can get into details about why I came here, but I, I came here when I was 23, and I came straight to L.A. All right. Yeah, I, I want the details, because uh, I don't think we've ever talked about this either. I mean, I, I know the generalities, but not the details. You know, I'm going to turn my heater off. Uh, hold that thought. I'll be right with you. See, now that's being a professional, <laughs> turning off the heat in the middle of the gig. Uh, okay, so yeah, give us some details. Why, you know, was it something that was always in the back of your mind, like I'd like to move to L.A. and be a rock star, or what was the plan, what was the motivation? Y yes, absolutely. It, it was sort of always in the back of my mind. You know what, I, so I guess I always kind of grew up, or since the uh, early 90s, we got MTV Europe there, and I found out, Bon Jovi and Michael Jackson, and I was just like, oh my God, I want to be a rock guitarist. Um, and I knew there was a limit. Over the years, I knew there was a limit to what I could do in Israel. The ceiling was just like, just pressing down on me. And I could see other artists. Like I, at a certain point, I was a sound engineer. Um, I studied it, I worked at it, and I met with all these people that were uh, I mean, with all these rock, like legit rock stars in Israel, just huge people that I grew up on. I was working with them now and I would go pick up their gear. I was the backliner. I was the sound engineer, whatever. And I, we would go pick them up from their house. And it's just like this. This is where he lives. <laughs> really? And that's because it's simply because that's all Israel's got. It's a very small place. So I always sort of saw the the limits gear wise and where people live, there, there's a certain ceiling that there, there is there. It's just a small place. And so, I, yes, I looked, at, I looked at L.A., I looked at America as a, I want to go there and be a rock star. If I, if I can try, at least, that would be great. And then when I was 23, there was, there was a, a pretty, it was a terrible time in Israel. A lot of, there was a second intifada. There was a lot of, um, a lot of terrorism, buses blowing up left and right uh, every week. And um, it was just bad, man. And I, I was like, th there was a specific incident where I was in Jerusalem going to meet some friends downtown and I'm listening to the news. Uh, a terrace just blew up in Tel Aviv in a place called Mike's Place, a place that a lot of American people come to a lot of, it's just very Israeli, but American. I played Mike's Place in, in Jerusalem all the time, like since I was 15, I was there all the, it's a bar. I'm not even supposed to be in there, but I was there playing. And um, so that hit me. I was like, man, I could have been there more than any of the other times that things were close. That was just like an awakening. It was like, you know what, ready or not, because I didn't feel like I was ready. I was like, should I go? Should I not go? I don't, I don't know, going from this tiny little pond to this huge ocean. I don't know if I'm ready. I'm not fast enough. I don't know enough theory. I'm not, I'm not ready. But um, I, I just, I was like, you know what? 
I, I gotta go, man. Next week, I could literally be walking around and some bus blows up and my arm gets torn off, and I'll never know if I could have. You know, if you die, you die. But, uh, but what what about if I stay alive and I only have these two fingers? You know, I mean. I, no, you I stay, needed, be the guy stands on stage doing this all the time. <laughs> I needed to know if there was a shot at making it in America. And that was it. Two months. I waited for my brother. My brother was scheduled to get married uh, um, a month later. And then two months later, I was out. Wow. Uh, and let's give the audience some context on Israel, because I was just talking to somebody the other day. I've got two daughters that live there and I go there. I've been there seven or eight times. People go, oh, you go there. It's isn't that dangerous? Um, and I say, no. It's actually, I, I am not joking when I say I feel more in danger walking from my car in the parking lot to get into the Staples Center for a concert than I do walking around most parts of Israel. It has had periods like that during the Antifada where um, buses were blowing up, but now it's feels remark it feels like walking around los angeles actually maybe safer than la right now and i'm not kidding probably is you're right i mean there's so much there's there's police there's they've got amazing intelligence there's police there's uh there's um uh, military there's the, the idf there's there's just so much protection these days it's a lot more dangerous in israel to be a police officer or an uh, or a um or a, a military person because you are you're the target it's no longer there really aren't too many attacks on civilians in the big cities if you're going down and you're just at some a yeshuv you know like like a what what is it what is it called that everyone knows a, a kibbutz right yeah. <laughs> or a yeshuv all the same thing basically uh which is a, just a small community uh maybe 20 to 200 families all in one place, all kind of pitching in and stuff. If you're right on the border with Palestine, with the Gaza Strip, yeah, there are scenarios where you're in bad shape. And the, we're not even talking, the rockets are not the issue. The rockets are happening all the time. Anyone that's living down there, that sucks. But that's a whole nother conversation. As far as walking down the street in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv and worrying about getting stabbed by someone, it's just such a rarity. Like, there's more chances. Actually, it happens all the time, but there's more chances that it's just some conflict or it's, uh, uh, what is it called? The Israeli mafia. Um, that that's, it's, not, it's not usually a terrorist attack. Those are carried out. If they happen these days, they happen against uh, soldiers. That's the word I was looking for before. Right. <laughs> soldiers and, and police officers. It's also much. a very tiny country, just to give uh, our American viewers some perspective. The entire nation is the size of the state of New Jersey. And in the center of the country, if you were to drive directly across what people refer to as the waste of Israel, it's like an hour to get from one side of the country to the other. And you can drive head to toe in like seven hours, right? I think it's, it's like uh, the California, more or less. It's like what? California. Yeah. Um, smaller than California, um, uh, geographically very much like Northern and California kind of rolled into one thing. Um, anyway, lovely country. I encourage everybody to go there who's never been there before because you will have no fear. You get off the plane and uh, you'll feel welcome. The people are wonderful. The food is great. Um, and the history is amazing because so many other uh, cultures have occupied Israel you know, over the millennia that you could see like a crusader castle, you know, that is in Israel. You would expect it to be all like, 
you know, old Jewish stuff, but, but there's not. There's Roman stuff. There's Crusader stuff. Anyway, let's get back to some rock and roll. Um, so that, that that is something that you don't have in America. Like, I don't mind it, but because I grew up with it. But the, the history is something you don't have here. You go down to South America. There's Mayan history. There's a lot right. of history down there in certain areas. Um, in, in, in Israel, there's just an abundance of history all over the place. It just, it's not something you have in America. So if that's something you're interested in, go check it out. It's incredible. You know, what has always amazed me is that you're walking around, uh, like you go to a park and there's gravel in the parking lot. And if you look around, you'll see pieces of pottery shards that are thousands of years old. Everywhere you go in that country, there are little pieces of pottery laying around. I've got pieces that I've picked up literally in a McDonald's parking lot one time. Uh, a little piece of pottery this big that's still got the paint on it from, you know, two, three thousand years ago. It's wow. mind-blowing. Mind yeah, that's um, man, for sure. So when you arrived here, uh, was your plan to be a performing guitarist and touring, or were you more interested in studio work, or just whatever came your way as long as it was music business? That's a great question, and it brings up the seriousness, right? The seriousness factor that you, you know me to be a very serious, and you know? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I landed at 11 o'clock in the morning. I knew one family here, not just friends. I used to date their daughter in Israel. Um, and they still talk to you? Uh, well, yeah, I'm still in touch with everyone. The father passed away. I'm still in touch with the mother and still in touch with the daughter. She's in. I was, she, I was making a joke because you used to date their daughter. They were still talking to you. But anyway, but I, you know, I don't know if it, well, for those of you who don't know me, I stay in touch with everyone. I love it. I love knowing the more people I know, the better. Um, so I uh, that I eleven o'clock. I got to their place. Um, landed here at eleven in the morning. Went, uh, got to their place. I already had. I, I just took a shower, ate something, and I was like, "Okay, where is the closest?" Like at the time, it was recycler, right? The paper. Right, I remember that. <clears throat> I was like, "I need, I need a place to live. I need a car. I need a cell phone. I need a job." Uh, where can I find all of these things? I said, well, you can check out Recycler. Um, I was like, where can I pick one up? It's right down the road. There's a gas station. They have them there. I was like, great. That's a, my first lesson was right down the road in Los Angeles means <laughs> 30 minutes. Walk. It's not. See, the difference is when you say right down the road in Jerusalem it's Tel, or Tel Aviv, you're literally walking down to the street, crossing it, and it's there. I walked for 30 minutes thinking it's got to be somewhere because I haven't seen a gas station yet. Eventually, I got to the gas station and I uh, got recycler, went back home, walked back home and started marking everything. And uh, that night already, I, I went out with the daughter, Donna, and I went to uh, a local. Uh, it was, th there was a rock band playing at a lockout. It was a rehearsal that they had invited people to. So I went and I got hit hard. Six 6 p.m. Uh, uh, jet lag. I could not keep my eyes open. <laughs> but um, the idea was this. No one knows me here. I can make up who I am. I, I'm, a, I'm a very successful sound engineer and, and uh, uh, industry guy in Israel. But no one knows who I am here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to be a rock star. If it doesn't work, 
I'm gonna be I'm gonna be I have something to roll back onto. I, I can do uh, I can be a sound engineer. I can be a, a backline tech, a guitar tech. I can do a bunch of that stuff. I can work in studios. The main thing was I wanted to work in the industry. But before I gave up on being a touring musician, that was the goal. I wanted to be Richie Sambora. Okay. Um, now, I started working at Guitar Center. So a month in, I got a job at Guitar Center. And I met a lot of people. That was also one of my strategies. I, I really needed to meet people and get into the scene. And I told everyone, I was, you know, um, I am looking for work. You hear of anything. Actually, it doesn't even matter. I'm looking to play. I don't care if it pays or not. Auditions, rehearsals, shows, sessions, whatever. I'm not looking for money. Just looking to get my name out there. Um, and uh, was one of the things that I learned was I, I was meeting a lot of people that were twice my age, which is actually the age that I'm getting to, right? Uh, uh, I was 23, so they, they were in their mid-40s. I'm 41 now. And they had done all these things in their life, and they were there working under me. I was the department manager or a certain point a certain point I was department manager and accessories and I had people twice my age I'm telling them hey uh John can you go fill out the the Dario nines need to be filled out can you go grab grab them from the uh, from the warehouse and whatnot and I'm just thinking to myself this just feels weird and wrong and you know I'd get close to people and eventually I felt uh, close enough to say so what happened I didn't say it like that, but I was like, what really, what, so, so tell me about your life. Long story short, I found out the common denominator was, uh, yes, there are always emergencies that happen, with, but the common denominator more than not was they didn't plan ahead. They didn't plan financially, fiscally, responsibly, fi about plan ahead to when they weren't touring anymore. And that's when I became deadly serious about like, I need to think ahead. Um, wow, then, I'm amazed that you had that wisdom at 23. Well, I appreciate it. That is actually, but I, wisdom is one way to look at it. I, it's just my type. I, I learn from other people. I look at their successes and their mistakes and their failures. I like to learn by their failures, not mine. I like to learn by successes to get successful. And to give you an idea, it wasn't just 23. This is what I did when I was 13. It's the reason why I never drank. It's the reason why I never did drugs. I don't have any problem with people that drink or do drugs. I'm surrounded by it. But <laughs> I knew by failing, I just saw people making mistakes. In my mind, why are you drinking and then feeling like crap the next day, the whole day? You, all I see is you drinking, acting like a fool, and then throwing up in the corner for two hours. And I just thought, <laughs> do I want to be that guy? And the answer was no. So I didn't do it. That's it. I'm not saying there isn't fun in drinking and fun in drugs. But I, I looked at the, you know, I just weighed the consequences and it was just like yeah it's not for me so i did the same thing here it was like yeah i want to be a rock star but these guys were touring the world in different capacities and they're working for guitar center under me they just i mean what's up and it was it was planning ahead it was a very big deal and that got me into well what happens when i don't have these amazingly good looks uh, <laughs> well, what happens <laughs> to anymore and that's yeah. what I about writing and publishing and got into that world which is more the taxi world right, right. but i think that answers the question Feel yeah it does and i'm really astonished uh, i mean at 23 i was working in big studios on big records but i never thought about 
the only thing I thought about was what do I have to do today to be more successful a week from now, a year from now, two years from now. That's about as far out as I was thinking. Although you know me well enough to know that I am somebody who thinks about having an, I, it breaks my heart when I see people hit retirement age and they're living paycheck to paycheck. I've never wanted to be that person. So you and I share that sense of fiscal responsibility, being good stewards of our money. Um, so, okay, what was your first touring gig? And then I want to know what it's like to audition for something big like Enrique. But what what was your first like real touring gig? And was it in, in a van kind of thing, smelling other people's stinky feet? Or was it on an actual tour bus and like a real, real tour? No, it wasn't a tour bus, not to begin with, you know. Um, I, I want to say I left Guitar Center 2007, just January 1st, 2007. I was no longer working there. Um, so three and a half years. And um, my first tour was right then and there. A few months later, I went on tour with a band. The band that I played with was called Optimus, uh, which was amazing it was like this rock this rock this rock hip-hop rap thing but not like anything you've heard like wow that guy 40 towers i mean he's really good it was just an amazing thing but it, but it was it was just incredible so i toured for a a month month and a half maybe six weeks with in a van um i did some of the driving but i didn't care man i mean it, it, yeah, I, just, I was getting paid to rock every night. So that was, <laughs> uh, I think the first, and there were a lot of other ones, but that's one to, worth mentioning. Uh, one of the ones that, one of the, my first ones wasn't touring per se, but it was because we would leave for a week and then come back and then leave for another week. And that was with Anna Nalik where we did radio stuff for a second album that ended up not seeing the light of day and ended up not being released by the, by the, uh, I think they just dropped her after that, but wow. we did go and do a lot of radio, which was extremely intimidating for me. In fact, if you go to my YouTube, I think that's the first, if you go to my YouTube and look at the first video I ever put up, you just, instead of the latest video, you put first video, you just, whatever right. you see, the first one, it's one of those first ones. It's me playing uh, breathe with Anna Nalik. Do you remember that song? Yeah. <laughs> um, so if someone doesn't remember that song, check it out. Uh, it was very, very intimidating, man. I, I've definitely had to do a lot of uh, fake it till you make it. And I'm in the middle of making it, but I still had to fake it. First few times, just to jump for the for the example, first few times. First year I played with Enrique, I was like, I don't belong on the stage, man. I'm total, I forget what the, what the symptom is. It's like, you feel like a fraud. Oh, the imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yes. I couldn't play. I didn't know what it was called at the time. I now know there's an actual syndrome and I don't know what it is exactly, but that's, that's what it felt like. I was like, I'm just playing, smiling at people. And I'm just like, this is way above my pay grade, dude. I don't know what I'm doing here. But, well, but so I why? I mean, first of all, you didn't get booted after one or two shows. Um, second of all, why? I mean, you're an excellent musician. You look great on a stage. What about you felt like you weren't cutting it? I I appreciate it. I don't know. It's it's a mental thing, man. You're just there playing in front of 20,000 people, a full arena, and you're just like, it just feels surreal. It's just yeah, that, really surreal. 
It was, you know, we, we were talking before this, before we started, we were talking about Enrique and Smash Mouth, uh, and we spoke about it a little here. The, 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 the Enrique thing, I, first of all, you click with everyone, you know, I mean, in different ways. It's like this family, and then you join bin, that band, and it's a different family. But when I was with Enrique, I missed playing with Enrique because I missed playing with all those guys. I'm in touch with all of them all the time. I'm on a group with them still on WhatsApp, and we always talk. But when I was with them, I, I could swear, man, I could just, I missed the rock family um, mm. that Smash Mouth was. So, of course, it's the grass is always greener. I'm with Smash Mouth thinking, man, I kind of miss playing the arenas and stadiums. But we just did 18,000 people, three shows for, for 18,000 people each in, in New Zealand last year. And then we were going to do arena stadiums in uh, uh, arenas, arena and stadiums, arenas and stadiums uh, as part of a tour um, two months later in April. And I got that died because of COVID. But yeah. I don't want to digress too much. I just want to say that. That first time that it was with a legit artist with Ananalik that I actually listened to on the radio, I was it was very scary. Um, and then there's Smash Mouth and Enrique, but you wanted to ask about the audition part, so please go ahead. Yeah, well, let's talk about the Enrique audition because I, I know that he's got a reputation for being uh, extremely selective and very picky. You know, he, he's, he's his bar is set very very high. So I'm assuming that you go to a place kind of like SIR, some sort of rehearsal facility, and there are a number of people scheduled throughout the day, and you walk in the room, and the other guys are all, you know, the back line is set up, everybody's there. You obviously have learned the songs before you go. Do they give you a list of songs you should know before you show up for an audition? Well, those are two separate questions. I'm going to answer both. First of all, right now what you uh, described is a very standard audition here in los angeles it, right it'd be just like when i auditioned for daughtry it was 10 people from all of la that was it they just wanted to give us the, the 10 names that we need to have in this audition uh and it's it, and you go go in there and you have a few songs that you got the the, the night before and you got to go in there and you have to act like you belong there the imposter thing right you just you right. just have to act like i was born for this let's rock and roll um with specifically with Daughtry was very weird because I was playing with the band and they just not to digress. I don't want to forget your question, but which was the Enrique audition, but that was such a weird audition because we, they were running three hours behind and it was a rainy day. We were, we were, we were all the guitarists would just put with our instruments. We're just all in a trailer right outside mates and a rehearsal studio for those of you who don't know. And we're just waiting to be called in. Um, and the reason why I was taking so long, they they were being fitted. Not we're being fitted. They were just. They had just got their in ears uh. that day, and they showed up to rehearsal, and they were getting themselves dialed in. So first of all, that was the first time they were playing with in ears, and they were getting ready to go on on to continue a tour. They were dialing everything in, so they must have felt weird. Mm -hmm. And. They had just rehearsed and toured with this guy who ended up saying, listen, I can't, for whatever reason, he was like, I can't do it anymore. They had a week to find someone and train him to go on to continue the tour. So it was a weird position for all of them, which put everyone else in a weird position. So you find yourself in that position a lot. Enrique was nothing like that. Okay. <laughs> uh, my name got put in a hat by my dear friend, uh, Eddie Kaipo, which is the, which was the engineer and sometimes tour manager for Smash Mouth. Um, 
uh, front of house and monitor engineer. And uh, he was working with Enrique and still is working with Enrique as a monitor engineer. And I had reached out to him um, and, and 400 other people uh, that, that year because things were going slow. And I, was, I told everyone, I was like, well, you know, I'm still with Smash Mouth, but um, if anyone's got anything, like we're just in like first or second gear and I'm, I like revving the engine. I'm, I'm like, if I'm not making savings that year, what a waste of a year. Mm-hmm. So, f- fiscally speaking, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, he told me, well, you know what? He, he got back to me and a few other people, but he got back to me and said, you know what? Um, I, I the the lead guitarist is about to leave. Are you? Do you want me to put your name in? I was like, yeah, let's do that. So he put my name in, and I'm not going to get. It was a long thing, but I got. Basically, what I had to do, and I have the video of this, and one day it'll go up on YouTube. I had to record myself performing on camera the song uh, Bailamos. So I got the tracks. I got the, basically, they send me the live version with everything. They send me the live version minus my guitar. That was what I was going to play to. They sent me just my guitar with a clip. They sent me the tracks. Basically, they sent me everything I needed to prepare. And then I learned all the parts and played it about two, three hundred times and hmm. recorded it. Uh, and they liked me a lot. Um, unfortunately, there was someone else that was already that had already been brought brought in, but they weren't sure if that was the right vibe. And I was like, you know what? It's cool. If it's not the, I'm glad you liked my performance. When it's the right time, it's the right time. Right now, I'm with Smash Mouth anyway. Don't even worry about it. And then they got back to me. A few, I stayed in touch with the MD, and he got, and uh, we stayed in touch. And then a few months later, he was like, "Hey, listen, there's this, there's this week that we're playing three shows in Europe. Um, we kind of told the other guy that it's not going to really work out. Would you be interested in coming and doing these shows?" I was like, "Yeah, sure." So I got all the material, I prepped all the material, and then showed up and played a gig. <laughs> That's how that worked. When you walk in the room on an audition like that, where the bar is very high, um, do you have to turn on? I mean, do you have to do, you're great on stage. You physically look great. It's so funny. Again, I know you as a friend, not as this guy on stage, but on stage, you know, you'll do a little running, you do a little twirling, you do Do you have to do that stuff in an audition? Or you just basically sit there and show them that you're extremely competent on your instrument? Is it making eye contact with the other players so that they get a vibe? It's like, yeah, I could, I could groove at this guy, but what goes on there? I mean, you're trying to create a vibe. It's not just about how you play. It's about how you play, how you look. Thank you for your compliment. It's about how you play, how you look, what the vibe is. If I come in, if I come in, no matter how nice I am, if they don't think maybe they love partying and I'm not a partier, if they don't think they could spend two months with me on a bus in close quarters, it's not going to work out. Yeah. So trying to convey that you're the right guy, you're trying to be real, like this is who I am, take it or leave it, but you're also trying to convey... I'm the right guy for the job better than anyone else here. Um, It's very, very uncomfortable. You're trying to like perform at your best without knowing these people. Uh, You're trying to perform your best with just getting the material yesterday and just picking it out of the, okay, so I need to learn this song. Let me go on Spotify real quick or YouTube and figure it out. Like, I think that's, there are 20 guitars there. 
Which party? <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to choose something. And it's not about which parts you choose to play. It's about the vibe in the room. And that's the hardest thing to create when you don't know people. It's the hardest. Yeah. It, and it's, there's, it's, there's no audience to vibe with either, which is a big part. I see you reacting yeah. to the audience in the videos of you on stage. One minute you're, you're bouncing off somebody else in the band. The next minute you're turning it on to the audience and you can see that you're having fun. That's got to be hard to do inside of four walls with a bunch of people sitting there going, eh, maybe, maybe not. Picking <laughs> They're picking every little thing. Yeah. My job is to do if I come in and do it perfectly, they don't even know that that the last guitarist left. But they've been playing with the last guitarist or whoever, whatever the case may be. They've been listening to the same recording forever. Then I come in with my interpretation of it. Already, I'm at a loss. Already, yeah. it's be like maybe they want me. Maybe I start shredding and they're just like, "Oh yeah, man, fucking let's do this." Or they're just like, "Dude, what are you doing?" Just, just play the part. You don't know because you don't know them. It's, it's really weird and awkward, and you just try to smile your way through and make the best impression, and that's it. That's all you can do. Do you... Somebody just asked about wardrobe. I was going to ask this later. Um, I've noticed that you don't dress flashy on stage. You dress, but I noticed that you and Enrique both had the chain thing going on, that little wallet chain or whatever they call that, that biker chain. And I thought to myself, I wonder if Enrique watched him walk on stage that night and he goes, dude, you're dressed too much like me. How much do they have influence over your wardrobe? Do they tell you what to wear? Do they provide you with wardrobe? How does that go? Well, I lost. Wow, it. that's an interesting oh, question. Um, I'm back. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Get what? Oh, one, two, three. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, I'm nope. getting. Uh, I'm getting no indicators. Anything's dropping out. You know, no, all the tech is good, but yeah. You. Anyway, it, it's the internet. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so, do they provide you with wardrobe, or do they say only wear black, or what? Not at all. I, I have actually, I actually was approached in the Enrique thing because I, with the Enrique specifically, that gig is supposed to be a party. You're supposed to look like they, they brought to answer the question part of it. They brought a wardrobe person in before we went out for touring for, for real tours. When I auditioned for that, not when I auditioned, I looked at what they were wearing on stage on YouTube. When I came to perform mm. with them uh, for the first time, I wore the things that I saw. I was trying to assimilate as much as possible. I wasn't bringing my own thing. As time went by, I kind of did my own thing. And then when we went on tour, they brought in a stylist uh, to dress us all. Okay. And, and do they provide the clothes for you? Or do, you, do they just say, go buy black Levi's? No, no, no. They provided all the clothes up to a certain amount of money. And then if we wanted, if we wanted to keep some of those clothes... Um, more than that, then we'd have to pay for it. It was, it was like, it was 1500 bucks. Like they, they just they basically they gave us, they wanted the stylist to give each one of us three sets of clothing that could also be like three pants, three shirts, three jackets that could be mixed and matched. Got it. Um, and they did that. Uh, I ended up paying from my leather jacket that I still use to this day because it was a little over budget, but I, <laughs> I wanted it. It just looked so good and, uh, and kept me warm in Kiev. 
Uh, and, and that's it. I still wear it to this day. I got it like four years ago. So, <laughs> but, um, I, but I did it. Okay, let's shift gears to talking about your life when COVID hit. First of all, uh, I, you and I talk, we're on a group of like, 10 guys that are fairly active on WhatsApp. So we hear from each other in the context of that group several times a week. And I kind of remember, it was exactly a year ago today that I had just gotten back from being in Israel for a couple of weeks. And I remember when the plane landed at LAX and I got my car driving home thinking, wow, this COVID thing's real. It hadn't really gone global yet. And it hadn't like, you know, it was a thing people knew what COVID was. They didn't understand how bad it was going to be. At what point did you go, uh-oh, my career might get seriously damaged by this thing? Yeah. Um, I'm, still, I'm still waiting on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, look, man, I, it's, I'm not happy with it, but I was like, I don't think I ever thought to myself, oh, crap. And the reason is because... I've always had, ever since I decided to become, to, to think about these, these things, I've had multiple forms of income. Um, so I knew that I would survive. Would it have been very hard without EDD? I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm collecting unemployment right now while I'm not working. Would it have been, would have, would, would it have been a lot harder? Yes. But I, I, I thought worst case, I'm, I'm at zero debt more or less other than my house. If I need to, I've got a lot of sources where I can pull money out. I'd be worried then because pulling it, right. pulling money out is one thing. How are you going to pay it back? But I don't know. I'm still, when I, when I said I'm still waiting for it to hit is like, look, this sucks. But if you're a professional musician, you go through good months and bad months. And, and that's just like, like we, we, we prepare for it. We know it's going to happen. A year of it, man. I mean, this is very hard, but I don't know. I mean, it, mentally, I, I was never like, "Oh crap." Uh, and you've played a few shows. I remember you played Sturgis with Smash Mouth, um, yeah. and you came home without COVID. I was so quietly convinced that you were going to come home. I mean, weren't there like a hundred thousand people there not wearing masks? Let me uh, let me let me give you some facts on that one. Okay. First of all, they, all of America freaked out because yeah. Smash Mouth did a show. And I was like, well, hang on a second. <laughs> ten, let, let's take Smash Mouth out of the equation. There was a 10-day festival that was, if I'm not mistaken, the 70-year anniversary of Sturgis. For those of you who don't know what Sturgis is, it is a biker festival that happens for 10 days. If, if I'm not mistaken, it's, seven, it's either 7 or 10 days that happens every year for the last 70 years. It was the 70th anniversary. There was barely any COVID in that state. And um, and the state said, go ahead. Don't worry about masks. Don't worry about social distancing. You're good to go. The bands said, hell no. There will absolutely be social distancing backstage. On stage, they sprayed our stage. They sprayed the whole stage with Lysol between acts. Like there was insane amount of everyone behind stage was was wearing a mask on stage. Everyone was wearing masks unless you were singing into a microphone. Right. There was, what ha so what happened in the crowd was one thing. What happened on stage and backstage was a whole nother level of security. That being said, again, it, it doesn't. I don't. I think what people missed 
what America missed is this had nothing to do with Smash Mouth, guys. You just took the me the media said Smash Mouth had a show and you just went with it. This was happening with Smash Mouth, without Smash Mouth, with bands, without bands. No matter what, there were, and by the way, in front of us, there was maybe 2,500 people. But yes, you're right. Over the 10 days or so, there are hundreds of thousands of bikers going to that festival. In and out, in and out. Someone comes for two days, goes back home. Another person comes for five days. And from goes. all over the country. So it's not, it was in South Dakota, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's not just like that, because South Dakota had very few cases of COVID. And I remember their governor said, look, I, I think you guys can act like grownups. You should probably wear a mask and social distance, but I'm not going to make it a rule. You guys are grownups. Do your thing. And uh, so... They took a big risk. I mean, they couldn't stop Sturgis. I think it's unstoppable. There would have been uh, a riot or something. But people are coming from all over the United States. Literally, the other 49 states all converge on South Dakota. So the amount of cases coming in could have been really disastrous. You're right. A few things to keep in mind. First of all, I didn't get together with any of those people. Right. <laughs> didn't even have a meet and greet like there was no connecting it was super safe for us and uh the second thing was again i'll mention a point out this there could literally they could have literally canceled the shows for the whole thing and you would still have had a festival with hundreds of thousands of people coming to it Right. So that, I think that's the part that people missed. They were just like, yeah, how dare Smash Mouth go and perform? It's like, dude, do you realize this is not, <laughs> this has nothing to do with it. That thing was happening whether no bands showed up. Mind you, there were, I believe, 20 bands on that lineup. So somehow the media stuck to us and America decided they were going to judge us without really using their brain. No offense to people like, listen, if you're mad at what happened, by all means, be mad. But at Smash Mouth and, you know, I think that I think the biggest thing was I, I got some some friends of mine on Facebook, which is like really dogging me. Not most of them, but there were a few. And I had one of one of the um, one of the uh, what's it called tour manager, one of the tour managers that we had in the past. He kind of I, I wasn't I wasn't talking to anyone about it. I'm doing more talking right now than I've ever done about this matter. <laughs> the the manager, someone in the industry had dogged me and him and another guy were talking about like, yeah, should we, could we, um, what's the word when you, uh, don't go to their shows anymore. You don't buy any uh, of them. Uh, not yeah. blacklist. Um, you know what I mean? like, should we blacklist smash mouth in the other bands? Right. And the tour manager said this, and I want you guys to think about this. The tour manager said to him, sure, go ahead. But if you're going to blacklist the band, you should probably blacklist everyone that put this together. So I'm going to need you to blacklist every band, not just the bands. You have to blacklist all the roadies that work with them. You have to blacklist the managers that worked with other bands, too, because they let it happen. You have to blacklist the promoters. You have to blacklist the everyone that put this thing on i really think in that case you should blacklist i took it another step you should blacklist anyone that rides a bike because mm. come on bikers right it's like come <laughs> on dude. It's a little needle point and you stuck it to smash mouth and said yeah it's their fault what what 
That's anyway. the media, though. I'm, as my viewers know, I I do not love the media even a little bit. Um, well, yeah, but the media is going to do its thing. But come on, think, think. Yeah. Anyway. Sadly, nobody does. Um, okay, so now let's talk about you. You've already laid out the groundwork for this because you talk about you plan for the future. So okay, now you find out. I'm going to be doing three shows next year instead of 75 to 100 shows next year. My income's going to be turned upside down. I'm going to be able to collect unemployment, which will be a fraction of what I would have made on the road. What did you do to grow your retirement fund while you couldn't do what you normally do for a living? Well, the retirement fund was getting money regardless. Um, I, the, the, I guess I lowered expenses. Um, as much as I could and uh, between me and uh, Trish and um, I tried to gain as much money I tried to bring in as much money as I could from anywhere that I could mm -hmm. mind you you know keep in mind I do have real estate properties that are paying monthly I have uh, royalties upfront money sync fees I have back-end money from from the pro from the PROs um, I worked very hard on getting my stuff into even more libraries, but um, I had to, I, I sort of, I sort of had to take a break from focusing on creating passive income and focus on making current income. I remember you called me up one day and said, or actually, I think you came over to the office. You said, yeah, yeah. can I come and talk to you? Because uh, I was coaching Sean. He was already in some libraries, uh, and one in particular that was doing nicely for him, and he wanted to expand that. And that was even right before COVID hit, I believe. And then when COVID hit, you yeah. said, uh, I think it was after COVID hit, you said, can I talk to you? Said, yeah, come on over. So he came over. Maybe we went out to dinner or whatever. He said, I'm, just, I'm getting my stuff in all these libraries. I'm doing everything you told me to do, and uh, I'm not seeing any money come in. And you were freaking out. And I said, Sean, you've just got to have faith. It's not going to happen in 90 days or six months. So what did you do with that? And did it turn around? I mean, honestly, the uh, it hasn't turned around yet. But and keep in, keep in mind, guys, I, I OK, so I had a I had a li I had a library. I had a catalog that I recorded from 2006, 2007 to 2014. I sold that catalog in 2017. Uh, and bought some property, bought some real estate. Um, since then, in 2018, I started a new catalog because of uh, Michael here. Uh, he convinced me to start a new catalog. I'm currently at about 450 cues for that catalog. Wow. The goal was, I fell short of this goal every year because it's a hefty goal when you're on the road, you know, half of the year. But yeah. the goal was 200 cues a year. I've yet to hear uh, to hit that. But last year I had to I had to go easy on that goal and make that be. Uh, I ended up recording 103 songs last year, and this year I'll probably do the same. Simply because, again, before my money was coming from a variety of things, and then when 90%, 80% of my income just fell, fell like just not happening anymore, I had to focus on bringing income in. So that was the focus. It wasn't the passive, like when I'm on the road, when I come back home, I'm creating passive income. I'm just here in the studio, creating, creating, creating. But when I had no money coming in, it's like, 
I have to get money coming in. So sessions became a priority. Um, reaching out to more libraries became a priority. Uh, doing some custom work became a priority. And yes, it will take time. I just, with, 400, with over 400 cues to my name, and in a variety of, of uh, uh, libraries, exclusive, oh. non-exclusive, all kinds, I'm just like, how am I not seeing this grow and grow and grow? It seems to have plateaued at a certain point, but I'm still creating. I'm still creating. Yeah. I'm still doing this, and I believe in the the, the where it's going to go. I'm creating good material. Everyone likes it. Everyone's taking it. And I'm just going to keep reaching out to more libraries, and I'm just going to keep putting out more material, non-exclusive, exclusive, all that stuff. In fact, now I'm doing – you know what? I should say this to your, your, the people that are watching this. One of the things that I started last year is I realized I have 400 tracks – that are just instrumental. Yeah. What I know that when you play stuff with lyrics, it it's easier for me to make instrumentals. I spent five hours on in here and I, I've got a great cue. But um, what if I got, and I own it 100%, but what if I got lyricists, top liners, singers that have the ability to top line and then record it and even sort of mix it for me, just do all that and throw the stems at me and I'll mix it final and final. What if I did that and split that 50-50? And that's what I started doing. That's one of the things that I did. And for anyone watching this, hit me up. It's not that hard. Contact at seanherwitz.com or go to Sean Hurwitz. Look me up on YouTube. Look me up on a, It's super easy to find me, even on Instagram. Like, I'm very easy to reach out to. And um, I am totally down. And um, so I'm working right now with probably about three different singers. Basically, they hit me up and I see if they're going to if they're at the level that I need them to be, if they can write for TV and film, you know what I'm talking about, all you guys. And, um, you know, the topic needs to be very all over the place. It just needs to be empowering or it needs to be about love. It shouldn't be about Michael and Sean having a conversation at 4 p.m. on a Monday. It should be very, very applicable to many different scenes. Oh, yeah, they know this. All, all the viewers uh, know the drill because they've been beating it into their heads for 12 years on YouTube. But, yeah, it's... Universal topics, universal lyrics, and not like not universal in the sense everybody's going to like this. Universal in that you don't talk about love like I love my wife Debbie with the blonde hair and the blue eyes. You talk about she makes me feel like I like I'm home every time I hug her. And that I'm could be. Just that lyric alone could fit so many different scenarios and scenes. So. I find the right people. A lot of people hit me up. I find the right people. I'm working with three right now. Happy if anyone wants to hit me up. If they're good enough writers and they can record their own stuff, this is important to me, especially these days. I can't bring them into the studio. But if they can do all that and deliver, I am happy to split 50-50 with anyone and get, get even more stuff out there. And, and double. If I have 400 songs and I keep doing my thing, but I can write another 100 songs just by them using my... Uh, my uh, my uh, instrumentals, great. I just whatever the number. I just gained another hundred songs. Right. All right. Cool. Um, let's see how we're doing on time. Five oh three. All right. Let's do another ten minutes, and then we can open it up to some Q and A. Um, you mentioned the real estate before, and I think the time you and I were in the car, we were like on an hour and a half long car ride. You were talking all about the real estate. I never bothered to ask you that day. Well, gee, how did you get the money? Did you win the lottery? Did somebody pass away? You got some inheritance. 
but you just told us uh, you sold your catalog and that gave you the money and you did the most brilliant thing. I'm so happy you invested it in real estate. I have a friend named Barry Dvorzon who owns MasterWriter, the songwriting software company. He's also had a massive hit songwriter. He wrote the theme to Shaft. Um, he wrote the theme to The Young and the Restless. Uh, you know, I mean, could you imagine having a theme on a soap opera that plays every day? Um, anyway, he started his own catalog when uh, years ago, like in the 60s, and sold it. Um, I want to say sold it to Warner's and probably got a few million bucks. He put every penny of it in real estate in Santa Barbara and San Diego in the 60s. Wow. Yeah. Oh, God. So I was so proud of you that day when you told me that you invested in real estate. I don't know too many creative types who are not business types. The two usually don't go together that well. Um, but the fact that this is one of the reasons that I love you like a brother is that you've got the creative head and the business head. Wow, I'm so impressed that you sold your catalog rather than going out and buying more gear or, you know, a new car. You put it in real estate because that's going to cover your butt when you're 65 years old and you're too old to tour. And uh, there you go. Smart guy. Exactly, man. The, the, the most uh, the, the guys that I know, the musicians that I know with the most longevity have diversified their income as well as planned for the future. So yes, they're making, they're, they're making money from sessions and touring and doing random things here and there in music, but they also invested in things that aren't music. They invested in the market. They invested in real estate, in real estate long-term, in real estate uh, short-term rentals. Like the guys that did the most diversifying are the ones that can last long-term. Yeah, absolutely. Um, while we're on the subject of smart things musicians should do or know, uh, you had a video that I saw on YouTube about things that every musician who wants to become a pro should do these five things. I think one of them was um, get clear on your business, sign agreements. Do you remember what the five bullet points were in that? Because it was common sense, but really well thought out. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was my first, um, actually, let me pull that up real quick. I think it was my first video actually on that note for anyone who is wondering what he's talking about. If you go to uh, YouTube and look up Sean Hurwitz, which is what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Um, and it, it's Sean Hurwitz, H-U-R-W-I-T-Z, not Hurwitz. Thanks. Actually. And if you don't really know, you could put up my name and screw it up and just go smash mouth and it'll fill it in. Okay. Sean Hurwitz. Or something like that, or Enrique Iglesias, um, and you'll see I have a lot of these every every week. I put out uh, another thing about music business, about um, licensing, about all kinds of things. Feel free to follow, sub, comment, like, all that good stuff. It helps me out. Uh, the one you're talking about is uh, the first one that we put up about a year ago, and it's. I, I did five habits that changed my music career, but that is not the one you're talking about. Let me go to videos. Um, the one you're talking about is, here we go, here we go. Five things. Five things I wish I knew before I started. 
that one. <laughs> yep. And yes, and I discuss, uh, I'll tell you because I wrote it down. One is band agreement. Um, I am a big fan of just agreements in general. I literally wrote it. It doesn't have to be, it can also just be an email, but it's very important to have in writing the agreement. I literally just, I started working with uh, another um, couple of uh, writers that do this top line thing with me. That done, They've done some amazing stuff so far. And I sent them an email yesterday with everything that I'm going to do with the music, what's cool with them, what they can do, what's not cool, or everything. And they had to agree to it or tell me if they had any concerns. So a band agreement in one way or another. By the way, I also have a video about band agreements. And I give you an example of a band agreement I signed years ago. It's available for free. Um, I think it's very important. So agreements, contracts, if you want to call them that, but they're very important. Um, I also talk about where not to have business meetings, which is funny enough because it's not really a business meeting, but I talk about not having business meetings in your studio uh, or where you record because you want to keep the vibe of the money and the vibe of the creativity separate. Right. You, mentioned, you mentioned before, I, I have successfully um, done what a lot of people struggle with, which is be creative and also be a businessman. And it's yeah. a very, I, I've made videos about that. Like, and I tell people, if you can't be the business person, get someone, a friend of yours or someone or a manager or an agent to do that. Because without it, this is not going to last. Like you have I, to be able to keep money. I, when you said that in the video, I thought, okay, I got to tell Sean, I have not a differing view on that. But when you got to the part about get a friend, because yeah, I completely agree that the two things need to be separate issues. But when you reach out to a friend, people make this mistake all the time. They find a, a lawyer comes to one of their gigs, loves the band. Do you guys have a manager? I'd love to manage you. Or real estate agent or just anybody, an orthodontist, a gynecologist, doesn't matter. Somebody who just loves your music and you don't have a manager, I'd love to manage you. And you're so flattered and excited that somebody loves you and that they're going to take care of you cradle to grave and they're going to handle all this stuff. Problem is they've never done it before. They're probably going to screw it up and then you're going to end up in a lawsuit with them. If you do get a record deal, the label's going to pull you aside. And I've personally witnessed this twice in my life. The label pulls you aside and says, how much do you love your manager? Oh, we love him, man. He's been with us for years. He found us in a club in Joyzy, you know? Um, well, we work with several managers with these big acts who really know the drill. They know people at radio. They know how to get out there and get stuff done. So just saying, we're not telling you, you got to get rid of your manager, but if you really want your career to take off, you might want to think about it. And then you have to deal with the cold, hard reality of this person who loves us, who's been with us since the beginning, and we wouldn't be here in this record label having this meeting today. We have to turn around and fire that person. Now you end up in a lawsuit, and you're going to end up paying that manager half of what he was supposed to get in the original contract and you know, declining every year in a sunset clause situation. No new manager is going to want to sign you because you're already splitting the management money. They're splitting the management money with your old manager. So the only way to make it work and get the new high-powered manager while you're stabbing your other friend in the back, which sadly is part of that drill, uh, is to then give the new manager a percentage of your money. So now you're paying two managers, one who's working, one who isn't. So I completely concur with your uh, thesis that you need to separate the two. Just be really careful on who it is that you hand that business off to. 
we should teach yeah. a course together. <laughs> Absolutely. Everything you said is right. You have to think about it. But uh, you can hear me okay, right? I what? Yeah, I can you hear can you. Hear yeah. Sure. Um, All right. Um, but, uh, so, yeah, what are the other bullet points in that video? Because they were good. Um, the money is in writing and publishing. You all know that one. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, negotiating, uh, which I recently just did a whole video about that. I should link it here. Thanks for pointing that out. No problem. Uh, negotiating how important it is and uh, dealing with difficult people. Uh, I, I kind of basically say, look, every this is going to happen to everyone. You're gonna be. You're good. There are some people that are just not gonna like you. You're gonna have to learn how to get around it and and live with it. Uh, and don't. And f number five was don't burn bridges, uh, which is something that I do. Even if I don't like someone, it's usually not personal. I just may not. I, I might not work with them again. But you know, I just I, I try not to burn any bridges. Smart. Probably because you come from a tiny little country where everybody knows everybody. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, you know this, L.A., everybody knows everybody. Come on. I mean. In our business, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just the way it is. Yep. Yeah, it's funny. While we're on the topic of burning bridges in L.A. and how tiny the industry is, the, f the industry family or, so, you know, people who know each other. I run into this sometimes with taxi members who get really pissed off about a critique they got from a screener and they go online and they go berserk on a forum or on a Facebook page or something. I get, I don't know, several calls, three, four, five in a year from music library owners that say, do you know this guy? It's like, oh yeah, he's been a member for like five years. Well, I'm never signing him to my library. Why? Did you see what he put online? I don't want that raining down on me. So when they see somebody acting out, and I understand it, people get upset and they just want to punch something or break a window or, you know, smash a plate, and they do it online. And they've just, they literally can destroy their career. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it happen too. Yeah. Everybody's talking about the size of your mug and not, not your face, your, your mug mug. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Hurwitz, big drinker. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm using it wrong. You're supposed to fill it with Coca-Cola or <laughs> some, some slushy or something. So I am using it wrong. Um, I think we've covered a lot of good ground. So I want to open this up. We've got 16 minutes. Oh, now two more things quickly. Uh, you're an over an under promise over deliver kind of person. I know you well enough to know that. If you say that you're going to be at a gig at 3.30, you'll be in that parking lot at 3.25 and you will walk through that door at 3.29 and a half. You know, uh, you don't blow stuff. You don't, you take everything very seriously. I wish that more creative people, not just musicians, but creative types of all kinds, friends of mine over the years, yeah, I'll be there or I'll do this. And then they don't. Oh, yeah, I forgot. And, you know, were you born that way or was that a skill you had to develop? I had wonderful parents, still have wonderful parents that taught me well. Um, I cannot tell you where that sense of, uh, I don't know, respecting respecting the job or whatever you would call it, where that comes from. 
And you're a little wrong if the gig is at three. If I have to be there at three thirty, I'm going to be there at three. Right. And I'm going to be trying to make sure that I know where the entrance is at three fifteen. If I'll probably be waiting by the door if they're not already open. Uh, you know, amongst the amongst the professionals in the industry, I can tell you that I've ran into I've run into this uh, saying: if you're on time, you're late. I'm sure you're familiar with that saying, yeah. right? So, I mean, that's my attitude, and. I, I, you know what? I think the the biggest thing was always treat people the way you'd like to be treated. I think I probably got that from my parents, probably read it in a bunch of books. I do a lot of research and always try to grow business-wise as a business person and and as a person. And that's my main thing is always treat people the way you'd want to be treated. And uh, I wouldn't want to show up and I've I've needed people to be on time and they haven't been. And when they finally get there, they're not even like when they get there 20 minutes later, they're not even apologetic about it. This is just what? So I, I just don't do that to other people because that's not how I would like to be treated. That that would be the main guide for any of those things. Which leads me to the last question before we open it up for Q&A, which is ethics. Um, I would probably be wealthy, uh, certainly financially better off than I am if I decided to be unethical. There are so many ways I could screw musicians with taxi. Uh, You know, I I could be running fake listings. I could be telling people they're getting forwarded when they're not. There's just a million things that other people over the years have said, why don't you do this? Well, it's because I don't cut corners. I don't take shortcuts when it comes to ethics. It's either ethical or it isn't. There really isn't a gray area for ethics. And I've noticed that about you. You've never once in all the conversations that we've had displayed anything but a hyper-ethical personality. Is that hard to do in the music industry, to be super ethical? Uh, no, it's not It's not hard at all. Uh, there are definitely pitfalls that you could fall into and, and screw it up and there are ways to screw it up left and right, especially when you get into writing and publishing, right? Um, signing up with so many different libraries and all that good stuff. But I always try to put everything on the table. Again, I think this goes into what I was saying before. I've been screwed, uh, as I'm sure everyone here has or will be. Sorry. <laughs> um, it's just one of those things where I just don't want anyone to ever do that to me. So I'm going to lead by example. That's an Israeli thing. Lead by example. It's a military thing. I I didn't go to the military, but I'm just saying in Israel, that's the mentality. Uh, Lead by example. And and my parents taught me that. And I actually, last week, I'm looking at it. Last week I put up, I, I make some of these videos that are less than a minute. I call them Sweden to the point. Last week's was, what are the advantages of a strong work ethic in less than a minute? And there's a link there to the full video that I made about it. Right. But if you want to check anything out, there you go. That's that's the that's the one. Uh, and I know I, I think it really has to do with what I was saying before, which is treat people the way you want to be treated. And I've been screwed over, and I don't want to be screwed over. And uh, so I'm I'm going to go out of my way to make sure to not screw anyone over. Not only that, my wife will tell you, even if someone th- if I didn't screw someone over, but they think I did something, I am so hurt. Like, I feel not hurt by how dare they. I feel like I did something wrong. I feel horrible. Horrible. I mean, we we had this couple we were hanging out with, doing a lot of double dates and stuff. And one time, at one point in time, the 
they just broke off connection. Now, it wasn't just with us. They broke the connection with everyone else. They just, I don't know what happened to them, but we knew them for like a year. We'd gone on a multiple dates. It was good chemistry and they just disappeared. Real estate investors. Mm. And they, they broke up the relationship with other real estate investors. They just disappeared. I don't know. Don't know what happened there. But I took it so personally before I knew they did that to everyone. I was like, what, what did I do? I feel horrible. Did I say something out of line? Did I, you know, so that's how I am with everything. I, I just try to treat people, everyone, uh, try to treat everyone the way I'd want to be treated and, and really just, I don't know, treat everyone with respect and yeah, just, I guess just the way you'd want to be treated. That has that, that's where it all comes from for me. See, a lot of people think the opposite. Somebody tried to screw me, therefore it's okay if I try to screw somebody else. Everybody does it, which makes me ill, you know. Um, anyway, uh, all right, let's take, let's take some questions. Um, you guys, type them in the chat room. Uh, if you would precede your question with the word question in all caps, it makes it easier for me to spot them, and we'll, we'll do 10 minutes of q and I'll just mention while, you're, while they're doing that, uh, yeah coming up with some stuff that I do feel like LA, you can fall into the group of people, the hundred people that hang around together and write together and mix together and master and, and talk to the labels that you can, you can run into the, that group that is really shady, like extremely shady. But there are also for every group like that, for every bunch of people that are super shady, there's a whole bunch of people like a group of people, which I've been so lucky to have in my circle of friends that are super not shady and super uh, very, like you said, ethics and, and uh, just cool with everyone. You know? Yeah, I, I, I find them to be fewer and far between, sadly, or maybe they don't walk around going, hey, I'm ethical, and you gotta get to know them to learn <laughs> that about them. Um, couple of quick questions. Uh, how many genres do you work in, give or take? Uh, without counting them right off the bat, probably about seven. Okay. Um, what's your number one genre? What are you best at? Not what you enjoy doing most, but is there a genre that you just like feel like you can nail it every time? I think I do. Uh, it's funny enough. I mean, I'm a guitarist by trade, but I think I do uh, industrial tension the best. I okay. just that. I'm I'm super quick at it, and I like I have all these ideas, and I do that the best, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, um, favorite instrument? Drums. Really? Yeah. Wish wow. I was a drummer. <laughs> really, I never knew that about you. Um, of the 450 songs you've composed, or uh, what percentage are songs? What percentage are instrumentals? By the way, of your work as a whole, is it mostly? Wait, did I get out of the 400. Well, the there, there's a question, but it reminded me of another question, which is uh, what percentage of your work, of all the stuff you've got out there in the wild, is instrumental versus with lyrics? Um, I'm sorry, you were just breaking up a little, so I couldn't hear the end, but... Um, um, so what, what percent... <laughs> instrumental versus songs, percentages. Oh. In, my la in my catalog right now, uh, they're all instrumentals. Okay. Um, I have maybe a total of 10 songs with other artists, but I'm, I'm tr trying to grow that. Okay. Um, do you ever have to read charts when you do a gig? 
Nope. What's your go-to amplifier? Guitar amp. Um, the Kemper Profiler. I just recorded the video about that. <laughs> like the, we'll the which the, you broke up the Kempler. Yeah, the the Kemper Profiler. Right. Very familiar. Uh, sorry. Awesome. <laughs> That's my favorite amp. <laughs> uh, which is all of them. Um, have you ever written with Enrique? Uh, that's a great question. No, I haven't written with him, but he he did when he was writing a certain while ago, probably about two years ago, he was writing with a bunch of people and he came into the green room before a show and told us that he would love if we all pitched, like if anyone's got songs to pitch, just email him. And I emailed him a song that I wrote with uh, two other people and he really liked it. Uh, he, it never went anywhere, but he, he actually told me like, he really liked it. And could we, do you think we can do this? Like you could tell he really listened to it and thought that maybe the verse could be changed a little like that. And then we could do this with the arrangement. And I was like, sure, we could do that. But then it didn't end up going anywhere, but that was the closest I got to writing with him. Uh, here's a question. Has Enrique ever given you a massage? I'm kidding. Yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you ever play in Taipei? One of our, our viewers, Andre Stepanian, says, my band and Enrique's band members hung out in the hotel lounge in Taipei. What year was that? I, 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 no, I haven't been to Taipei, to be honest. Well, then the year doesn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I joined in 2015, so if it's 2000, probably... Uh, I probably wasn't there. <laughs> All right. Um, how much time does it take you to create uh, your average instrumental cue? Um, average five hours. I would say four to seven hours, depending on a bunch of different things. Uh, do you do orchestral stuff as well? I kind of remember that you've done some orchestral. I do, but uh, I, I'm not a very orchestral. I, I do incorporate strings. I was doing some tension stuff right now with some staccato and pizzicato. Like I, I have the ability to do that, but I don't think orchestra, you right. know, like certain people that just, they hear all the different elements. I hear some strings. I hear like a big tuba at the end, but I don't really <laughs> think orchestral. All right. Uh, let me scroll up, see if I missed anything. How big is your right bicep from lifting your mug? <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you work with Canadians that have sailboats? If so, we can make some yacht rock. <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I work with a lot of Canadians, actually, surprisingly. But uh, no. In fact, little tidbit. Um, Smash Mouth. Randy, the drummer, is Canadian from Toronto. Uh, Paul, the bass player, original bass player, uh, is uh, Canadian. Uh, Michael Kluster was adopted. Uh, the, the keyboardist for all these years, for from the from the top, from like the last twenty years or so, twenty two years. Uh, he um, his actual uh, blood relatives are Canadian. Okay. And, uh, and yeah, that's it. Those are the three Canadians in Smash Mouth. And then I'm Israeli and, and, and uh, Steve's from, <laughs> from San Jose. <laughs> um, you play bass as well, right? You, you play everything on your tracks unless you're collaborating with somebody. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I really haven't collaborated with with many people just because it's so much quicker to do it by myself. Right. I love collaboration. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It opens up so many doors. But if I'm doing something really well by myself, I don't 100%, why even get into it with another, with someone else? But when I'm producing, if some, I give the option of I can do everything in-house and you can pay this much, or I can get a bunch of musicians to do everything and you can pay this much. Your call, I'm happy to do it. Most of the time, they just want me to do everything here. Um, what's your go-to guitar? They're really, I, I've got about 23 instruments in front of me and hiding. Uh, I would say this, this uh, Shabbat guitars, actually the video I'm recording tomorrow that'll be out in a few weeks is about my five or six favorite guitars that I use. Make sure you watch that. Uh, this okay. is a Shabbat guitars, Lynx, and um, it is my main guitar with Enrique, uh, with Smash Mouth. My main guitars are Shabbat Lions, which are Snakehead uh, Tele Vibes. I have a couple of these. And um, I feel like those are my two go-tos. Then I have a D'Angelico right there, uh, EXDC. That's my go-to for uh, certain things. It's kind of like a 335. Uh, oh, that's my nice. For um, for that sound, <laughs> yeah. But All yeah, right. It, 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 you know what? It's the same thing with with synthesizers and with effects, and with what drums I, I'm using um, when I'm when I'm producing when I'm making things. I have a lot of instruments, and I decide what to use. There isn't one that I use just naturally. There's they're just there may be with plugins, but um, I'm always doing. I'm always using different things for different purposes, depending on what I want for the outcome. What are some of your favorite plugins? Um, Sonoxis has an MK three fifteen, which I love as a compressor. I use some of the UAD stuff. Um, I use some Wave things. Uh, I'm trying to think like the, the, I'm trying to think of the go-tos. Uh, I have a filter by Fab Filter that I love. I forget what it's called, Simplon. It's just a, re a very simple filter. I use it for everything. Um, yeah, I think that's it. As far as like the ones that I could think of off my head, off the top of my head. Well, we've hit the 5.30 mark. I, I've got to say, uh, maybe it's just because we're good friends that I enjoyed this so much, but it was just great seeing you and hanging out with you, man. It's been uh, been far too long, um, but yes. thank you for sharing. I think everybody in the chat room a little while ago, they were all saying, wow, you know, he's, he's like so grounded and level-headed, and you are, and uh, you are the opposite of the um, starving artist. And I don't mean that from a wealth perspective, but there's a mentality, which if I could change one thing about the music community on a global basis, it would be wave a magic wand and get that starving artist crap out of here. Because if you what? think you're if starving artist, you know, if you think you're a starving artist, you will be. And you're oh, the opposite. You're the opposite of that. And so I'm really glad that you shared all this stuff. And I hope you inspired some of the people watching today because uh, you could change a life or two. So good job, hey, that, Shani. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do with YouTube, man. I'm I, there's, there's so much information that I feel like starving artists, 
should know. They should know about agreements. They should know a little about writing and publishing. They should know that you can get all this stuff. And so I, I in case anyone wants to check it out, there's a bunch of stuff up there. But that's that's why I put it out there. I've been for years I've been trying to like, how can I take my experience and give it to people? And then my friend Christy, which is my partner in in YouTube, I partnered up with her and um she's just like, Why aren't you on YouTube? And I said, I don't know anything about it. And then she started blah, just telling me everything about it. And I was like, well, dude, you seem to know a lot. Like my time, I've spent my time doing a million other things. Why don't we just partner up? You seem to know what you're doing. And that's it. And and great. we've been partnering for a year now. Well, over a year. Yeah, the um, videos look great. The content is wonderful. So go to go to YouTube, look for Sean Hurwitz, S-E-A-N-H-U-R-W-I-T-Z. You can go to SeanHurwitz.com um, and... Uh, yeah, if you guys enjoyed the show today, please hit the like button as Liz is reminding you in the chat. If you're new to Taxi TV, hit the subscribe button. We'd love to see you back again. I'll see all you guys tomorrow for the Quarantini Happy Hour, 4 o'clock, same time, same channel. Sean, great to see you, buddy. Talk to you soon. See you on WhatsApp tonight, I'm sure. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sean Hurwitz. Thanks, Sean.